Hi everybody, this is Arathi from Human Chapters. I'll tell you a little bit about Human Chapters. Humans are living narratives with the past, present and future. The, these narratives constitute of a number of chapters across the lifespan. The aim of these conversations is to highlight a chapter of the narrative and unpack its connections to other chapters. I don't care whether people are natural storytellers, but I truly do believe each one of us has a story to share. In acknowledgement to country, we acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the lands on which we are. We pay respect to their tribal elders past and present and emerging. We celebrate their continuing culture and we acknowledge the memory of their ancestors. Today, we are speaking to Elizabeth about her chapter, Guiding Literacy Growth. Welcome, Elizabeth. Hi, Artie, thank you. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I am American. I was born uh, in New Jersey, where I lived for most of my life. And then for university, I traveled to the other side of the US to Arizona uh, for undergrad and college. Mm -hmm. um, after that, I landed in DC, in Washington, DC. Uh, and I had worked on Capitol Hill for a few years. And I recognized at that time that I just didn't feel um, completely fulfilled in the career choice uh, and hadn't really found my purpose in terms of what I wanted to do. So I switched to education and education actually has led me to live in three different countries at this point. So I started off teaching abroad in Italy and then I was in Tokyo, Japan, uh, very different <laughs> than Italy. And then uh, more recently, three years ago, I moved to the Netherlands. And so that's where I've been and based out of. Um, when I went into education, I was certified as an elementary school teacher. Uh, I went through an alternate route program. Uh, so I did two years of uh, grad studies. And then I went into the student teaching practicum. And so after that had landed my first uh, position in elementary school. So as a reading interventionist for K through three. Mm -hmm. And after that, I worked as a first grade teacher for many years, a reading specialist. Uh, during that time, I had my certification as a reading specialist, and then I opted to specialize even further. Mm -hmm. And so I went back to a school. Um, they had a program in their Center for Dyslexia Studies. Mm -hmm. And so I had a two-year program with a practicum uh, where I worked with dyslexic students and was certified as a Orton-Gillingham teacher. Mm -hmm. So that's a little bit about me and my background. Thank you, Elizabeth. Um, tell us about your journey and more the emotional bits of it where you felt, you said that you felt unfulfilled to begin yeah. with. Why is that? And what drove you into making the change with you to educate? Yeah. Um, I actually loved my time working on Capitol Hill uh, insofar as you're working in the pulse, mm -hmm. <laughs> the heartbeat of the, the country. Uh, and so I almost refer to it as another graduate school, even though it wasn't official. Mm -hmm. uh, 
and there was a lot of learning that happened during that time. Mm -hmm. I think part of it is you recognize that there's a lot that goes into government decisions that government mm -hmm. is making. Um, I spoke a lot with people from the state of New Jersey. I worked for a New Jersey Senator. Yeah. And so it was disheartening at times to hear their stories and how they felt that uh, action wasn't being taken or it impacted them personally. And so it was a lot mentally uh, at that time to be hearing this and just to feel like I wasn't able to make a difference yeah. was part of it. Um, another part was I just felt like I needed more creativity and hands-on. Um, and I come from a line of teachers and I wanted to try something different. My undergrad was communications and political science and psychology. So mm -hmm. I wanted to try something different and I did it and it was an amazing learning experience. Uh, but for me, actually teaching just had an allure to be working with kids and to be making a change and to have that hands-on experience that I was lacking. Yeah, beautiful. And so then when you did get into teaching, tell us about your journey from that point to go, what was it like for you, the difficulties, yeah. the insights, the learning points? Yeah, so I, um, I'm someone that tends to embrace change and learning. And I so looked forward to this change. And I did the required coursework. Um, it was in professional development and curriculum. So I, I ticked off those boxes. I had my practicum actually in a more of an inner city setting, which was life-changing, to be honest. Mm -hmm. um, so what happened though is I was given my first job. I went through the interview uh, period and was hired as an interventionist part-time for grades K through three. Yeah. And I kind of realized <laughs> a couple days in actually that the room was filled to the brim with resources. Um, there was no shortage of that, but that I didn't understand how to really pivot towards these students' needs mm -hmm. and to be teaching literacy. And it was something that was kind of my watershed moment, as my mom would say, because I felt so horrible that I didn't know how to meet these needs and that I wasn't doing what I wanted to do, which was help students and help these kids. And so it was that moment of, can I really do this? Like, am I actually cut out to be a teacher? Was it a mistake? Mm -hmm. um, I kind of felt very just helpless, I guess you could say. Uh, and so I found a mentor in the district, basically. Mm -hmm. And she was such an amazing sounding board of, I had so many questions and so many wonderings and she pointed me out to professional books and I read as much as I could and I learned as much as I could mm -hmm. to try to be somewhat effective for these kids who needed it most. Mm -hmm. And so that was a big challenge, but it was what spurred me later on 
to have the growth in literacy and to also share knowledge about literacy. Um, I moved on from there. I was really lucky. I was given an opportunity to work in a different district as a first grade teacher. Yeah. And that was such a foundational year and seeing how kids learn to read, how some, despite everything I'm doing, are still not meeting mm -hmm. the benchmarks and still not um, succeeding. Mm -hmm. And so I shifted towards uh, becoming a reading specialist. Mm -hmm. And I went through a two-year program for that. And I did learn a lot. So I gathered a lot of knowledge in terms of how to assess students, mm -hmm. um, things that you can do in terms of intervention, but there was still a piece missing. There were still kids that were seemingly falling through the cracks um, that no matter what I did, even with this new knowledge, uh, just still weren't learning. So I had another amazing mentor, uh, which was the principal of that school. And she had said, you know, there's a really great scholarship to engage in a program for dyslexia studies and come out certified as an Orton-Gillingham teacher. And I see your interests and I see your passion. And I think that this would be a really great next step for you. And so... I went through the interview process for the program and I was so fortunate to be one of 11 that were taken on. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, yeah. And so for the next two years, we dug deep into reading science and research and uh, the structured and explicit learning and the multi-sensory approach and what does and doesn't work for students with dyslexia and reading disabilities. And it finally was like a light went off of this is what I have been needing for mm -hmm. at that point, I think I was teaching for six years maybe. Mm -hmm. And it just, the puzzle pieces seemed to come together. And so my students benefited from it. Um, I benefited from it. And I was able to actually, I took the Orton-Gillingham learning that I had and I integrated it into the whole class, which at that time wasn't really a thing. Uh, it was just kind of, I'm gonna try it out and see if it works. Mm -hmm. And it did. And the kids really benefited from that no matter what level they were, for lack of a better word, or no matter where they were in their reading journey, all seemed to really prosper. That's amazing, Elizabeth. Um, okay, I do have one question. You mentioned the inner city practicum. Um, yeah. Was life changing for you? Yeah. I'm curious. What? Yeah. Um, Life-changing in the way that the stories that some of these students came in with. And so I think it was my first real experience that I've never forgotten, really, and taken with me in the sense that you don't know what's going on at home and you don't know what students are coming to school with, what sort of mind frame that they're in. Um, it was equally disappointing to see that they didn't have a library. Mm -hmm. um, the teaching was very much so 
straight from a book that maybe wasn't the best fit for this audience and for their learning. Um, so it was really impactful to yeah. see both the literary seaside and it was kind of before I even knew it. Um, mm -hmm. I had had, you know, experience of grad school, but I don't think it prepares you to see kids that are lacking the resources. Yes. So there you go. Thank you for that. My other question is, so before the puzzle pieces started to fit together, so that was six, four to six years, I would yeah. say, right? Yeah. Because you yeah. said that yeah. you had your scholarship for two years. What, let's unpack that a little bit. What was, you knew there was something missing. First of all, what was that like for you as a teacher? But what were you seeing in your students that really, yeah. Yeah. You know, I can think of two students in particular mm -hmm. that I um, had worked with as part of my reading specialist cert. So there was an aspect of a practicum with that with a student from my classroom uh, in order to use assessments, to put an intervention into place and yeah. then to report on it. Uh, and I found that for the two of them, regardless of what I was doing with the assessment, yeah. now in hindsight, I see that some of what I was doing intervention wise wasn't meeting how they were learning yeah. or what they needed. And it was one of those moments where um, you're racking your brain of what haven't I done yeah. to reach this student. And that was, it was frustrating, um, I think both for the child <laughs> and also for me, because I'm watching this from the sideline, trying to mm -hmm. help them and mm -hmm. they're frustrated. Mm -hmm. And like I said, I'm going back to what else yeah. can I be doing or what am I missing here? Yeah. And, you know, I had good grades, if you will. Um, I was termed effective, but personally, I didn't feel as highly effective as I think I could have been. Awesome. So then in to build on that question, what were some of the things that you were doing and you felt that you couldn't go past or like, yeah, go past it? Or I hope yeah. you know what I'm asking. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, what are some of those things you were doing within your reading intervention? Yeah, I think now, of course, hindsight's always 2020, but um, the assessments didn't match. Okay. So, um, when I came out of the reading specialist degree, we were still on a very balanced literacy approach. Yeah. Uh, and so the assessments and the programming weren't a match for these kids. And I didn't realize with the assessment piece, obviously, until years later. Mm -hmm. I think another key thing was that that explicit and systematic instruction was missing yeah. and that was a huge piece um so i was one of those people that was taught of memorizing the sight words um choosing leveled text uh so these 
methods were not working for these students. Yeah. Um, I would love to unpack that a little bit, Elizabeth. And I wonder if we should jump onto the second link. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure. yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, so Elizabeth, I actually wanted to unpack, uh, you mentioned about memorizing sight words and you mentioned about leveled text, uh, text, sorry. And um, then there will be another one of looking at the picture, which is um, a cue that we give this, that students are sometimes given when, it, um, when they're reading words. What is the issue with these? And why aren't they the best fit? So what I've seen um, even years on is that students then become too reliant upon these cues. And so there's less of a focus on the words and the structure of the word. And it can be hard um, now, even outside of school and in my intervention and remediation with students, mm -hmm. it can be hard to break that habit. Yeah. So that's um, something that was ineffective yeah. uh, about them. Yeah. And also the fact that these students didn't have a grasp really of the phonetic. And so to have them try to then read a book that was sometimes patterned, but sometimes not. And it was very mentally taxing for them to try to be moving between all of these pieces. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, not really have an understanding of the language in the book, meaning again, that word structure, the phonics, um, how to be able to actually attack a word yep. rather than be scared of it. I feel like students would get to a word and it's, it, there was fear almost of actually using mm. what was in the text. Absolutely. And, you know, it takes me to, I can't recall the um, little infographic uh, a hundred percent but it almost stated that if you get a child to remember I think 10 words to memorize 10 words that's what they'll memorize and there's a ceiling to it but if you get a child to learn um, 10 sounds and be able to blend those sounds to reading words they'll be able to read like over a hundred CBC words a number like I think it was close to 300 or something like that. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it yeah, just no, it's, it's incredible what kids can do. And I've seen that when you are teaching them explicitly um, about phonics and about the structure of words, their curiosity is often piqued. Like, why does it function that way? Um, there's lots of questions that come about it. And so it's interesting because phonics sometimes gets a bad rap. Mm -hmm. And yet I've had, when I started teaching explicitly with phonics, more interest, yes. more curiosity, almost more buy-in from the kids. It was one of their favorite points of the day. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it just provides that mental anchor that they need to start building their knowledge of 
words and of the language and books that they're encountering. That's exactly right. And it, you know, makes me think about something that um, Dr. Anita Archer keeps reminding us that it might be boring for the adult that knows how to do the job but it's not boring for the child that's actually learning what needs to be done. There is no guessing, but that child is then um, understanding it and it, that's being followed up with success in actually yeah. Um, yeah, getting to where they need to. Absolutely. Um, and I found later on too, because when I worked internationally, mm. most children are not native English speakers. Um, they're third culture kids. Some of them have actually never lived in their home country. Mm. They all speak usually multiple languages. And so having the explicit phonics was helpful for everyone. Mm -hmm. Everyone benefited mm. from it. And I think there are also such great opportunities to bring in vocabulary. There are those multiple meaning words that are simple words seemingly, but that have different meanings. And so that's a great opportunity to bring in the vocabulary and yeah. to make those connections. Absolutely. And you know, um, something that I've noticed just personally, um, for myself is we talk about English being taught, um, you know, like being taught explicitly using phonics and morphology and orthography and all of those sort of um, concepts. But recently I was talking to my partner and we were talking about um, Indian mother tongues, right? So mine is Gujarati, his is Hindi, um, and I'm biliterate. I had the opportunity to learn how to read and write Gujarati and he also had the opportunity but stopped at year five and one of the things that he mentioned to me was that he he somehow sort of equated or tried to visualize those characters in hindi to fit the roman alphabet and as a result he was unable to form the letters correctly or do any of that and that actually impacted on his ability to read and write um, yeah. and so that now we're talking about a totally different language but again phonics within that language um, structure is equally as important whereas I was taught how to form those characters very uh, th that was actually one of the pristine parts of learning and different alphabet yeah so, yeah that's incredible yeah. and so when I was looking at what he was doing I was able to apply that knowledge from what we are doing what I am doing with students at a school level to easily go oh my gosh you're not even forming that character correctly which means do you know what it is and does it come automatically to you when you're having to read or write the word yeah absolutely yeah. With that. And I'm, I'm seeing that um, with a lot of my students with the spelling, mm. the spelling is such a window into what a student knows and doesn't know and what has been cemented mm. as that mental representation. And that's something that also sometimes falls by the wayside or, mm. you know, you used to have the memorize the list of words for the week. Uh, and so there are such great opportunities too within that word study or phonics to have that opportunity to really cement 
these patterns and words through the spelling as well. Absolutely. Um, and Elizabeth, before we actually start talking about your company guiding yeah. <laughs> literacy growth, yeah. Um, how so say you've been tutoring students and a student is referred to you. Take us through an example of what you would do the minute the student actually or the minute you see that student. Yeah, so before I get into assessing and collecting my data to determine instruction for them, a big part is just getting to know them. So tell me about you. What are your likes? What are your dislikes? Uh, what are your challenges that you have? What is the best part of your day at school? Mm -hmm. um, kids are pretty in tune with what they can and can't do. And a lot that I meet are quite honest in the fact that it's frustrating for them with the reading and the writing. Um, gym is usually the favorite part of the day <laughs> for most. And that's something that I wanna change because I think that when you give the gift of literacy, you're giving the gift of life, really. There's so much that yes. depends upon literacy. Um, it's just not as simple as having a joy of reading or reading a book. It's understanding that world around you. Yeah. And so first is that social and emotional. So getting to know them as a person. Um, then I go through a chain of collecting data. So I use a universal screener first. Um, to determine their oral reading fluency, comprehension. But most students that are coming to me, I already have a pretty good read that there is kind of a breakdown in the foundational system. So I pick a little deeper. I'm kind of like an excavator. I pick a little deeper until I find uh, those areas where there's a breakdown. And then I plan specifically for them. So I don't follow a program or a book per yeah. se, yeah. Um, but rather I want it to be tailored and personalized to the student uh, because that gives me more opportunity also to be flexible and pivot. Yeah. Things aren't always a given. Um, and that's something that I think I really learned uh, over the years is having that knowledge to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the biggest pieces of uh, meeting readers where they are yes. is it's not going to come from a book and it's not going to come from a program. They're great resources, but like a basketball player, I need to know how to move on the court in order to best help. Beautiful. And have you found any standouts or once you start working with them, um, and you've and you've sort of identified the breakdown in foundational skills. How quickly after you you start working with the student? And again, I'm very mindful that that's an individual. It depends mm -hmm. on the student. But on average, do you have an average or like how quickly do they start making progress? And what happens? You know, it's interesting. Sometimes it's almost instantaneously with the first actual lesson after the assessment, um, especially with the older kids when they see something like I was working with an eighth grader uh, and he had actually never seen the floss rule, doubling the F, the L, the S, the Z. 
And when he saw it, it's like, it makes sense now. <laughs> like, how did I not know that sort of thing? So that often tends to, there's an effect right away. Um, and especially with the older students, they've seen it. They just haven't mastered it. And that's a trend I'm seeing quite frequently with these students is actually some of them are presenting as fluent, mostly accurate readers with decent comprehension. But when you look at the spelling and the foundational knowledge, it is very shaky. Yeah. And that's highly concerning when they're moving on to high school and tackling content heavy words that are multisyllabic, yeah. that have affixes involved. Um, and so that's part of also what I advocate for is you can have a student who appears on the surface to be a reader. It takes collecting data that's actual meaningful data to understand whether or not that is accurate. Absolutely. And what do what do these students do that make adults think that they're readers? And what have you found within your um, data collection to sort of know otherwise? So a lot of them, especially some of the older dyslexic students I work with, um, they've grown compensation strategies. So um, some of them are very highly intelligent. They've traveled the world. They've had a wealth of experience. And so they're able to bring that to a text. Yeah. And they're not actually looking so much at the words so much as they're scanning with the information that they know. And when you step back from that and you look at, okay, well, if I put these words in isolation, can you read them? Often they can. If I ask you to spell the same word, are you able to? Often they can. Um, I was a second grade teacher uh, up until this June. And that was something that I saw quite frequently, I actually, uh, in my school for grade two, brought in uh, the core phonics survey mm -hmm. to balance out. It was a school that is still using leveled reading and everyone is at a different point in their journey. But I do think that if that's what you're going to be doing for now, that you also have to have a way to screen and understand whether a student at a young age is meeting the mark or is flying under the radar. And I had a lot of these students coming to me that were grade level or above grade level, and you would give them the phonics assessment and a completely different picture emerged. And a lot of these kids, quite honestly, are just moving along mm. without any sort of intervention because you wouldn't know unless you knew to do a little bit of that digging deeper. Yeah. Um, and that sort of knowing when to dig deeper also comes with the knowledge base. And, yes. and the knowledge base also comes that sort of acute observational skills. Yeah. What is actually happening? Yeah, exactly. And I think that a lot of the previous and still current drive in reading is that I can observe behaviors, which 
there are reading behaviors, but a huge part of reading is obviously the skill. Mm -hmm. And so as much as I can be looking at a reader, and I think back to actually a first grader I had like 10 years ago, 12 years ago, and I saw what I wanted to see. Mm -hmm. I don't know that I was the most objective. And so now knowing what I know, it's we can't rely on our observation of behaviors alone. We have to also have the data yes. that proves this, if you will. That's right. And it's so interesting that you say that you saw what you wanted to see. What what was that? What did you want to see? Yeah, I... Yeah, I, I will never actually forget this, like little first grader, and she was reading to me and, you know, with the push for levels, there's a push to get them forward on the level and to say, oh, my class of first graders was all a level M going into second grade. Mm -hmm. um, and so I remember sitting with her and she was having to do inferencing and um, recall for the text and making connections. And so what she's saying to me is what sounds great to me, like I'm pushing her forward and thinking she's got it. But now 10 years on, I look back and it's, I don't think that that's what actually was there. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that if I had had the knowledge earlier to really understand her as a reader that I might've had a very different result yes. with my findings for her. And it's so interesting you say that in terms of looking at or knowing what to observe. Um, we, yeah, objectively, which mm -hmm. is important. But one of the things that I've noticed in many, many, many of the students I work with is their eye movement and mm -hmm. their lack of precise tracking because they're trying to get to the picture, they're trying to go oh, the word's going to be somewhere in there. And, and I have to explain it to them saying, actually a picture can hold way more words than what the sentence is, um, what the word, the specific word you're, you're wanting. So therefore, how are you going to know? And it's not something that they have ever, like they've been asked before. So they just look, the students look at me and go, I don't know what you're saying. But yeah. the idea of that eye darting movement so quick and therefore not permitting the brain to actually process the information. And one of the things that I've had to do over and over again is we can physically not control their eyes or we can't tell the child, Johnny, you need to monitor your eyes. You can't keep going back and forth because it's it's almost become involuntary to them. And they and it's so automatic that it's habitual. But when they're able to track precisely is when the picture is taken away. Then, yeah. then they're forced to stand out and then they're forced to, oh, okay, what is the actual word? And the amount of cognitive energy that takes to then go first read the sentence, then you look at the picture. Mm -hmm. Then you, you use the picture as a support, but not your first point of reference. Yeah, absolutely. And I also saw that again with grade two students mm -hmm. and something that 
I said quite frequently to my administrators is like, I feel like the last line of defense, because if these kids get to third grade and they're not reading proficiently, the likelihood of turning that ship around gets less and less and less and less. Mm. So it was hard sometimes in that grade level because you're having to break these habits that have been cemented since they were in kindergarten. Mm. They were five. Um, and some students, you know, I had one student last year who said, well, sounding out is so babyish. And I, I don't know where he heard that, mm-hmm. but trying to, to flip that mindset uh, took a bit of time of like, it's actually all about <laughs> the sounding out and looking at the word. And it's what good readers do. That's right. And that idea of it is so important for these students to actually go through that struggle of sounding out before the brain can then take on the automaticity part of it and become more fluent at it. But that struggle is an important learning point for them. Okay, so then tell us about where your journey of guiding literacy growth. How did your company, yeah, where was it conceived to, what is it doing now? Yeah, so um, I saw two needs uh, in my community, uh, both community here, but also with international schools at large. Uh, The first one is obviously access to remediation or intervention for students who have a reading disability or uh, dyslexia. And often for expat parents, it's very hard when you're in a foreign country, um, your child is at an international school, perhaps they've bounced around. Uh, A lot of embassy workers bounce around every few years um, to feel like your child needs help, but you don't know where to turn. Sometimes they feel what the school is doing is great. And sometimes they recognize that the student needs even more. Yes. And so that's been a real need. In fact, I started this summer and my docket is really almost full. I want to take on as many students as I can, uh, but there is a real need for it. Mm-hmm. Um, the other aspect of the business is that I've had such a journey in terms of growth, and I've also been so lucky to have people along the way that were kind of signposts for me in my learning. And I don't shy away from someone telling me that maybe I need to think differently about something. And so over the years, um, the structured literacy has always played a predominant role in my classroom, but I've also seen how we can start to connect dots to other areas. So for me, content is just as important. Uh, Students learning about the world around them is just as important. And it has a role in that literacy block. And we can find ways to connect those dots and to make those connections so that the learning is more rich and meaningful for the kids. And I know it can be a struggle for both teachers and schools sometimes to find those connections and to really take a good audit of the curriculum. And as I said, with international schools, 
there's turnover not only of kids but also of students and so a lot of uh, schools have programs which are good because you have these programs that teachers can use readily coming in but my contention is that I think it's more important to have a strong curriculum regardless of which program you're using albeit hopefully it will be a high quality one uh, so my goal is to really get out there and find ways to improve our curriculum yeah. so that we are incorporating the structured literacy, but also seeing that there are very wonderful connections that you can make. Um, I've appreciated lately, I've seen a lot of the Knowledge Matters campaign, and um, that has really just kind of solidified for me that this is the right track in terms of bringing in that content mm. and world knowledge. Uh, and so I just want to be able to assist schools to do so because I know how overwhelming it can be with so many different initiatives and things coming in. And the thing is, it's almost a less is more. Sometimes we try to do everything all at one time, but there are better ways to do it, ways that are more sustainable, um, mm -hmm. ways that lead to better outcomes for the students. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Elizabeth, you've mentioned structured literacy. What, what is structured literacy? So uh, for me, the structured literacy is having that systematic and explicit instruction, especially in the early years, um, focusing on all of the components of literacy uh, in a more direct approach. I think that we can't just rely on kids learning through osmosis, really, or um, being exposed to it and therefore they've mastered it. Yeah. So I think that there is a role and a need for structured literacy, especially I get to see both sides. I get to see it from a specialist aspect and I also get to see it from a classroom, previous classroom teacher aspect for 16 years now. And I see that a lot of the kids, especially K through two, um, aren't always getting the intervention that they need early. And so I think with the addition of strong tier one programs that have that structure, we can lessen the load on learning support that allows kids who need it to actually have it and have a adequate, more than adequate amount of it. Um, so that's where I see yeah. And then you mentioned less is more. And yeah. let's unpack that a little bit to go with teaching or if, if the students are learning, say, a topic or a concept. And how do we then follow that less is more philosophy? So I think it goes back again to talking about auditing the mm -hmm. curriculum. So mm -hmm. looking at what are the priorities um, for me? the foundational skill and the structured literacy are running parallel to this, if you will, they are required, they are a necessity. But on the other end of that, looking at where are those areas where we can make connections. So mm. 
if I'm doing, for example, community, how can I pull those social study standards into the literacy block and not to take the place of the structured literacy, but to enrich it. Mm -hmm. So my students can then be reading text about the thematic topic, uh, which also builds the oral language and the vocabulary. We can be writing about the topic uh, and take on a genre and have that explicit learning of writing. Yeah. And I've seen a great benefit for students of having these conversations across the day. Mm -hmm. It lends itself to them having really rich knowledge afterwards. Sometimes I think what happens is we're so hung up on the standard and the program says this, and uh, we have this initiative for social emotional learning or inquiry, and there's so much to contend with and to think of. But I think if we can look at those different pieces from each that are beneficial and make them work within a framework, then it's that less is more instead of trying to pile everything on. Absolutely. No, that's really beautiful. Thank you so much for, yeah, taking the time to explain a lot around structured literacy, um, what you have been doing with the students from assessment through to intervention um, and your own personal journey into why this has come to be. Um, is there anything that uh, I, before we do wrap up, is there anything that I haven't asked you, Elizabeth, that you wanted to share with us today? You know, I don't, I don't know. I just think that um, part of what I can recognize and understand is that teachers all come from different points of view. They come from all different knowledge bases. They come from all different backgrounds. And so I find that often teaching is not much different than being a student. Mm -hmm. We all need to know uh, our needs. And so I think that when we focus more on what are areas we can grow, as opposed to, I don't wanna change and I'm resistant to it, mm -hmm. um, everyone benefits at the end. And I think with some movements, people can often feel attacked or like they're not doing what they should be doing. Mm -hmm. And it's not a matter of that. It's often, we just don't know. And I've said quite frequently to many different people, sometimes things in education seem elusive, like it's a secret, like it's a secret recipe that only certain people know. And so that's something that I hope people can take away that there is this opportunity to build knowledge. Um, remaining curious, I think is one of the best qualities that one can have because when you're curious, it lends itself to being open to different perspectives, yeah. being open to making changes that can benefit all stakeholders um, and being open to having that ability to communicate um, and not questioning or attacking, but rather reassessing and looking at how we can grow. Yeah, absolutely. And the final question, which probably you have 
actually addressed it, I was going to ask is the three to five key takeaways for anybody in the world listening to this conversation? Yeah, so I think um, leaning into change, things never stand still, time always moves on. And so as comfortable as we might get, the reality is that we have to evolve and we have to change. Um, never shying away from different learning opportunities. I know if I did, I wouldn't have gotten to the point that I am today and I'm still learning. Yeah. And I find great value in saying, I'm not done yet. There's a lot I don't know. And there's a lot that I have to figure out, but it's part of the journey, mm-hmm. the curiosity that I brought up before. And another thing is the questioning, like being on social media, I see a lot that people have to actually preface before they say something, I'm not judging, or I'm asking because I want to know. And to me, it's concerning that we've gotten to that point that we have to preface asking a question. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's just something, questioning is not always meant to be threatening. I love asking questions. Mm-hmm. Questions show that we understand, that we're listening, mm-hmm. that we are prepared to make those changes. Mm-hmm. And so I think all those things are really important. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. Thank for you, taking your time And sharing your chapter, but sharing, more importantly, sharing your journey about why you're doing what you're doing. Um, for anyone else that's going to be listening to this conversation, either it's on YouTube or um, Human Chapters Facebook page or on Human Chapters podcast, please feel free to share it with anyone else that may connect to it. Um, it's always nice if, yeah, it can be shared and just pass on the knowledge. So thank you, everyone, and we'll see you later. Thank you.